This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 234th episode, we have a bunch of dinosaur news, including the new dinosaur Alcman Avis and lots of new dinosaur exhibits. We also are going to answer a couple of listener questions, and we have dinosaur of the day, Agathalmus. But before we get into all of that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons for making this episode a reality. And this week, we'd like to thank Scotty, Megan Dixon, Kessler, Tristan Jules, Grandpa Dino, Rhinosaurus, Morgan Eklov, Dr. Eigenbot, Lori, Risa, Kelly, Manda, Laurasaurus, Timmy, James Pascoe, Gabe, and Courtney. Yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate all of your support. And also, we love interacting with everybody. So if you go to our page patreon.com slash inodino and you sign up, then you can chat with us on Discord and also get other benefits. Yeah, and I also want to especially thank everybody this week because we just finally finished our noise panel. We reached the 120 patron level a couple months ago, I think now at this point, embarrassingly long ago, given how long it took to make this panel. But it's really cool. So we have this two foot by four foot print that's on fabric and then it has a noise absorbing panel behind it. And I built it in a wooden frame and it has a picture of us chasing a T-Rex puppet slash guy in a suit <laughs> at our wedding. So if you want to see pictures of that, then check it out on Patreon and Discord. And we're going to use it in the background of our videos when we make more videos. Which will happen. Yes. Eventually. <laughs> Hopefully soon. Also, before we get into the news, I want to mention that I just graduated from grad school. And so I lost access to my usual paywalled articles right before we recorded. So <laughs> this week is an open access only episode because that's all I could get access to. Unfortunately, of all of the recent new dinosaurs, only one is in open access. And then there's another interesting article that I'm going to use for the fun fact. And as a side note, a lot of universities canceled their subscription to some of the more expensive journals in a push towards open access. So hopefully in a few years, most new dinosaur discoveries will be published in open access and this won't be a problem anymore. But we should be back in order by next week with all the other new dinosaurs. But for this week, <laughs> our new dinosaur was published in eLife which is a journal I don't remember seeing before. And the paper was written by Oliver W.M. Rauhut and others. They named the new dinosaur Alcman Avis Poshly, And Alcman Avis is from Alcmona, 
which is apparently an old Celtic name for the Altmuhl River, which is in Bavaria in Germany, and then Avis, which is Latin for bird. It's actually kind of interesting. They wrote in the article that it came from the Greek for bird, and then someone commented and said, nope, that's Latin. That's why you get peer-reviewed. Yeah, but I guess that slipped through the peer review process because it was a comment on the article afterwards. But anyway, the Poschlai part is after Roland Poschel, who found the specimen, and then I guess ended up giving it one way or another to a museum so that they could study it. The specimen is called SNSBSPG 2017I133. All right. So it was found in 2017. You can tell by that name. Quick side note, Garrett actually remembers all of these specimen. Well, not all, but a fair amount of these specimen names because we've had interactions recently with paleontologists where Garrett points out, oh, do you mean specimen, whatever the number is, and then... Yeah, some of them stand out. Some of them stand out. I think, <laughs> I think one paleontologist said, now you're speaking my language. So. Yeah. I mean, it's useful because otherwise you'd say like, oh, that one juvenile from this one place... It's not specific enough. You right. got to get them specimen numbers. That's how you really know. <laughs> <laughs> Another nickname for this fossil, though, was the 13th specimen of Archaeopteryx. But the title of the article lets you know immediately they don't think it's an Archaeopteryx anymore because it starts out as a non-Archaeopterygid avialin, specifically saying it's not an Archaeopteryx. <laughs> Another useful thing about the specimen name is that it tells you where it's from. So all those letters at the beginning is usually the museum where it's housed. And in this case, it's the German version of the Bavarian State Collection of Paleontology and Geology. So it's in Bavaria where it was found. That's kind of cool. So Alkmanavis was found just a few miles south of the famous Solnhofen limestones in Germany, where most of the archaeopteryx specimens have been found. I think in the article they said like nine of the dozen have been found there. And they all have that really cool like squished look. It's pretty iconic. Everybody knows what these Archaeopteryx look like, I'm sure. And early reports, like I said, listed Alcmanavis as a specimen of Archaeopteryx as well, but further analysis seems to support it being its own genus and species. So there are enough little differences that we now think that it should be called Alcmanavis and not just another specimen of Archaeopteryx. Alcmanavis was found just a little bit higher in the formation than most other Archaeopteryx specimens or <laughs> of the Archaeopteryx specimens, if it's its own genus, making this one slightly younger, and it's right about 150 million years old. So that's pretty old for something that can fly, you know, that's definitely within the Jurassic. But unfortunately, they only found the right wing and nothing else, and not even really a complete right wing, because they found the humerus, but it was kind of pulled away from the rest of the wing, and it's missing a little bit of the end. And then the rest of the wing is in a vaguely lifelike pose, but it's a little bit mashed up. And I think there's a couple of little tiny bones missing. So it's basically just like the right arm, but in birds, we call that the right wing. So <laughs> that's what they found. Like most things from these quarries, it's smashed into a single plane, like all of the Archaeopteryx that everybody's seen. So the bones are what they consider poorly preserved, but the chemistry kept the keratin sheaths intact on the claws, which I think is pretty cool and generally is considered very good preservation. So I guess in some ways it's poorly preserved because it's kind of smashed up and crushed. But in other ways, you know, we've got some soft tissues that are preserved that you don't usually see. So that's pretty neat. But apparently that's common for the area to have the keratin still partly visible 
which I guess makes sense because that's where we found the original Archaeopteryx feather that the whole thing was named after, started the whole naming of Archaeopteryx, and you can't get a feather unless you're preserving keratin. Alcmonavis is considered more derived, also known as more like modern birds, than Archaeopteryx because it probably had larger pectoral muscles and it also had a bigger, more robust second finger, which I guess is important. <laughs> I'm not big into what makes a bird more like a bird than a dinosaur, but the pectoral muscles make sense because larger pecs, if you've ever done like weightlifting and you've done that weird flappy machine where you <laughs> kind of like pull your arms together <laughs> in front of you, that's the same motion as flapping a wing. So obviously if you have larger pectoral muscles, you could flap your wings stronger. Interesting analogy. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we ever have like big wings we could strap on, yeah. strong enough muscles, it'd be important. But even though it's considered more derived than Archaeopteryx and they point out these differences, when they got to the phylogenetic analysis, it still came out as the closest relative to Archaeopteryx. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's totally different, except that it's really similar. <laughs> they called it the most bird-like bird discovered from the Jurassic too, which I thought was kind of a fun description. So since they think it could flap its wings and actively fly, they consider it a bird. And then the fact that it's from the Jurassic, but it had bigger pectoral muscles than Archaeopteryx means that it was more bird-like. Also, they call it the largest avialin theropod yet recorded from the Jurassic, which I thought was pretty cool. So it's the most bird-like, but also the biggest, which seems counter to what I usually see. Usually the small ones are a lot like birds and then they get bigger and they start to look weird and dinosaur-y mm -hmm. and less and less bird-like. But this one's simultaneously the biggest and the most bird-like. There are some big birds. Yeah, but it's interesting to think that maybe some of the earliest birds were on the bigger side of things. True. That's not how I usually think about it, but... Evolution's weird. It sure is. <laughs> So I try to figure out just how big it is, obviously, if you're going to call it the largest bird-like bird and all this kind of cool stuff. But they didn't have any real depiction of how big it was in life. They didn't describe a weight or a wingspan or anything like that. So I pieced it together from some of the information in the article. The humerus is missing a piece, so they couldn't measure its full size. But they estimate it was about nine centimeters or three and a half inches long when it was alive, which is, you know, decently large for a bird. And the full wing looks like it would have been at least three times that long. So we're getting up to a wingspan of well over a foot. So that's a decent sized bird. The longest claw was 17 and a half millimeters or two thirds of an inch long, which is pretty big for a bird. Yeah. It's a little bit terrifying. It would have been sticking out of the edge of the wing too. Ooh. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. But in terms of its overall size, they say it's 11% bigger than the largest known Archaeopteryx, which is the Solnhofen specimen. That's quite a bit bigger. Yeah. I don't know exactly how much the Solnhofen specimen would have weighed or what his wingspan is. But yeah, if it's basically competing against Archaeopteryx back in the day, it's bigger. They also said it was like 200 something percent bigger than the smallest known Archaeopteryx. So it's... <laughs> Like, yeah, of course, it's if it's bigger than the biggest one, of course, it's bigger than the smallest one. But I think they might have said that to point out that there's a range of Archaeopteryx sizes, and we only have one individual of Alcman Avis. So depending on if this one is a big one or a small one, maybe a, a different individual would have been larger. Mm. We also don't know how developed this one was. It could have still been a juvenile or something. So 
It's hard to say exactly how big these would have gotten. Finally, the authors talk a little bit about what they think this imparts to our understanding of dinosaurs and bird evolution overall, and they think that this Alcman avis specimen supports the idea that flapping birds came before gliding birds. And we've talked about that a ton in the past with the trees down or ground up <laughs> used to be the analogy, and now there's a bunch of other competing ones. But it sort of fits with what we were talking about last week or the week before about the theory that maybe birds first evolved wings for flight and then some of them might have become secondarily flightless later, sort of like an ostrich. And some of those are the ones we might be looking at in the Cretaceous, thinking they were evolving flight, but maybe they were actually previously flying and now just have wings that of course look like they could be used for flight because they used to be, but they're not actually evolving in that direction, which I think is a pretty interesting way to interpret some of these fossils. But we only have one wing so far, so can't tell too much about it. Just enough to know it's a new kind of dinosaur. Yeah. Although there's always a chance that someone looks at it and goes, nah, I think it's an Archaeopteryx. Then it goes back into that pile, becomes the 13th specimen again. There's been a lot of debate lately, right? Ostromia. Yeah. And then there's another one, the Solnhofen specimen, which I mentioned earlier, that might also be its own genus, depending on who you ask. This is a reason why it's useful to have specimen numbers, though. True. Because saying the Solnhofen specimen is kind of confusing when 9 out of 12 of them came from the Solnhofen limestone. But anyway, I digress. Speaking of debates over specimens or genera, we've got some news about T-Rex. Well, a little bit. So Thomas Carr recently went to the Burke Museum to study the Tufslove Rex, and that's one of the best preserved T-Rex skulls. And he said that he believes that this T-Rex was about 19 years old, so makes it a young adult and said that it had the start of a crest at the top of the skull that's not seen in a baby T-Rex. The skull's going to be on display at the Burke Museum Paleontology Gallery when the museum opens in October, and it'll also still be accessible to researchers, so other people can analyze this. But it seems like this skull will help piece together T-Rex growth and therefore the Nanotyrannus and T-Rex debate. Nice. In another museum, the Chicago Field Museum set up a way for you to now text Maximo the Titanosaur. <laughs> so it's an AI service. It lets you text or send messages online and Maximo will answer your questions about things like what life was like in the Cretaceous, how he came to the Field Museum, what he eats, his favorite color, stuff like that. And the more questions that he gets, the more he'll be able to learn and respond. And his messages, they're meant to be easygoing and welcoming and funny. Interesting. I hope this stays lighthearted because sometimes these internet AI things take a turn. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't learn too much from the people asking it questions. <laughs> Maybe. You'll have to try it out. Next, Gene and Rick Edelman, a couple who's donated $25 million to Rowan University, also recently bought a 40-acre property to develop land right next to the fossil park at the university. The university is expecting a lot of visitors to come and dig for artifacts there. It's not clear yet what's going to go on this property, but it'll help make the site a strong tourist and educational destination. And the fossil park, visitors can dig. The university, though, will require visitors to sign a waiver so they can claim any finds of historical significance. Cool. Yeah. You do see that kind of thing from time to time in places where you can volunteer and help, where you can keep some of the insignificant stuff. But if you find something with scientific value, then they keep it. Mm -hmm. Just depends on where you're digging. In Saskatchewan, Canada... The T-Rex Discovery Center in East End opened up, and that's the home of Scotty the T-Rex. 
So that opened up May 18th. And just a quick recap, Scotty was found back in 1991, was about 30 years old when it died, and is also the largest dinosaur skeleton found in Canada. This T-Rex Discovery Center, in addition to having Scotty on display, has a scientific walking trail. So anybody in Saskatchewan or East End, Saskatchewan, anyway, check it out and let us know what you think. That does sound like it's going to be a pretty awesome exhibit. Scotty the T-Rex is pretty epic. Mm-hmm. We got to make it to another one of the Canadian provinces now. In Texas, the Houston Zoo has a dinosaur exhibit from May 25th until September 2nd this year. And they have animatronic dinosaurs of Utah raptors, Stegoceras, T-Rex, and more. So if you're visiting, cool place to check out. And then last in Hillsborough, California, Florence Fang is the person who bought the Flintstone-looking house. We've talked about this house before. They're now being sued by the city of Hillsborough for adding more dinosaurs and matching landscape. The city called it, quote, an eyesore and public nuisance. It'll be interesting to see what happens next. There's been a lot of mixed reactions on social media about this. Yeah, yeah. I tend to be in the more do whatever you want with your house and your landscaping camp. It's already a Flintstone looking house. Yeah. But apparently the city or supposedly the city has not been happy with it since it was built. So they're looking for ways to tone it down. Yeah. People get into crazy lawsuits. I read this article. It was talking about people suing their HOA and vice versa. Sometimes they go up into millions of dollars for some like installation that was just a couple thousand dollars because people just dig in their heels and can't let go on both sides. So hopefully this doesn't go that far. (laughs) Yeah. Can't we all just get along? (laughs) Next, we have a segment that comes up occasionally where some of our listeners have asked questions. And in this case, our listener Lisa asked us two questions. So we'll go over them. The first question is, is it possible to know how much iron or magnetic properties dinosaurs had? Would this lead them all to the dino graveyard? Yeah, that's a pretty good question. So it's kind of a two-part question. And as far as how much iron or like magnetic, ferromagnetic materials dinosaurs had, I'm not too familiar with birds because you'd basically figure this out by looking at birds to start with. But after doing a little bit of research, birds seem to navigate in a few ways. There have been reports and studies showing that they might have iron in their beak or their eyes or their inner ears. And potentially those, you know, one of those or maybe all of those in some combination or maybe just two of them might combine to help them navigate because the Earth's magnetic field creates these little tiny magnetic fields in the particles of iron within the bird. (laughs) And if the bird can sense it somehow, either with a chemical or electrical signal, then they could tell which way north is. And that's obviously really useful for navigating. And if you combine that with either being able to see exactly where the sun is or where the stars are or where markers on the land are, potentially even smelling sort of a map of the area, then you can really use it to navigate very efficiently. So I think the prevailing theory right now is that they're using the iron in their inner ear in order to navigate or possibly one of the other soft tissues, but none of those really fossilize. In the case of the inner ear and the brain, we do learn a little bit about what's in there via endocasts, but unfortunately endocasts aren't like normal fossils that often preserve some of the original chemistry. Endocasts are basically just dirt that filled in the space and hardened after the soft tissue decomposed, like the brain. So it's literally a cast. It's not an actual fossil per se. So 
That's usually the case, but we did cover at least one endocast that appears to have a tiny bit of soft tissue stuck to it, but I haven't seen any mention of iron from it, and I couldn't find any more recent articles talking about any chemical analysis of it. So I don't think we know how much iron they had, and even if they could do an analysis and they had iron in their brain, I think it would be really hard to detect because there is some iron just in rock. So it would be kind of hard to tell which iron was there because it was in the dinosaur or because it just got mixed in with the rock because it's very small, like trace amounts of iron. But it's possible. And to that end, they could have also just been navigating by, you know, the, the landmarks by either smell or sight and still wound up trapped in the same place as other dinosaurs. So yeah, it, they could have all been led to a graveyard by navigating for sure. Don't know about the iron though. And Lisa's second question is, is it also true that we are realizing that many of the species named are the same dinosaurs, just in different stages of life? Pretty much. <laughs> Although how many is pretty regularly debated. So Nanotyrannus being a juvenile T-Rex seems to be pretty widely supported, but Taurosaurus being a mature Triceratops seems to get a little bit less support. It always boils down to finding enough fossils to see what they call a growth series, effectively showing one transform into the other. And it's also helpful if the fossils are at the exact same age. Basically, the rocks are the same age, not the individuals are the same age, because otherwise it's possible that they're just very close relatives. So for example, with Triceratops and Taurosaurus, so far they're mostly in separate layers of sediment so it's they don't look like they're around at the exact same time and then it could just be that one evolved directly into the next one or they're just a cousin whereas if they were found all jumbled up together then you'd be much more likely to think that okay yeah it looks like they were all hanging out together and these ones are just the bigger older version of the other dinosaur so yeah it happens but I'd say more common is things getting synonymized and dinosaurs going away for other reasons. Like we don't have enough diagnostic characteristics and it's just like, oh yeah, we used to call that a dinosaur, but now we realized it's just kind of a regular old theropod with nothing special about it. <laughs> right. And that's true about a lot of the dinosaurs that were named in the Bone Wars. Yep. Yeah. I think most of the dinosaurs named in the Bone Wars ended up that way, or they ended up being a dinosaur that they had previously named that they ended up naming twice because they didn't notice it was individual variation. doesn't have to be that one's younger or older. It could just be that one's slightly different, just like how people of the same age can look different. With the other confounding factor that during the fossilization process, the bones can change shape a little bit too. So it makes it even more complicated to tell if it's a new species or if it's just another one of the same. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. 
Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Agathalmus, which was a request from Pat Tab. So thanks. Agathalmus was a ceratopsid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Wyoming in the U.S. It's a dubious genus, and nomum dubium, because not many fossils have been found, and of those found, nothing was diagnostic. They found hip bones, hip vertebrae, and ribs. The bones are now part of the American Museum of Natural History collections. Agathalmus is estimated to be about 30 feet or 9 meters long and weighs 6 tons. It was found in 1872 by Fielding Bradford Meek and Henry Martin Bannister, who were looking for fossil shells. They worked for Ferdinand Van Devere Hayden's Geological Survey of the Territories. And then they let Edward Cope know, and Cope published a name and description later that year in 1872. So, like we were saying earlier in the episode, this is a bone war dinosaur, and now it's considered a nomum dubium. (laughs) Yep, more often than not. Agathalmus was the first named ceratopsian. Yeah, when it was discovered, it was the largest known land animal. The name means something like Great Wonder or Marvelous Fossil Dweller. Cope named it Agathalmus sylvestris because it was so large and because the fossils were found in rock that indicated a forest habitat. They had leaf fossils. And in 1873, Cope said it was, quote, the wreck of one of the princes among giants, end quote. <laughs> Because Agathalmus was the first named Ceratopsian before Ceratopsians were a thing, Cope didn't know how to classify it and considered it to be a hadrosaur until Marsh described Triceratops in 1889. There were other species that were also considered to be Agathalmus. There was Flabellatus, Milo, Monoclonius, Mortuarius, Prorsus, Sphenoceras, but later these were all found to be either Nomodubian or included with other genera. Three of them became Triceratops. <laughs> Again, back to this is what happened to a lot of bone war dinosaurs. Yep. Agathemus was possibly a synonym of Triceratops, but it's hard to tell because there's just not enough fossils. There's no skull material that's been found that would have helped determine if it's a separate genus. Charles Knight illustrated Agathemus in 1897 based on the partial skull of Agathemus sphenoceras, which later became known as Monoclonius sphenoceras and then possibly Styracosaurus. And he gave it a large nasal horn and small horns over the eyes. Knight's painting was used as a model for Agathemus in the 1925 silent film The Lost World. Oh, cool. Yeah. And the painting was of Agathemus sphenoceras, again, not the type species, which was Agathemus sylvestris. 
It's always interesting when these dinosaurs sort of developed a life of their own and got into pop culture before science determined that they should be synonymized and kind of disappear. Mm -hmm. Gives the name a little bit of significance even after they're no longer used scientifically. And our fun fact of the day is that birds have very different leg proportions from the extinct theropod dinosaurs that we know and love. So even flightless birds may not be a great model for theropod movement. And this is according to the paper, Are Cursorial Birds Good Kinematic Models of Non-Avian Theropods? Question mark. <laughs> this is written by Bruno Grassi and others and published in the International Journal of Morphology which is also open access. Oh, good. That's why it's in this episode. <laughs> they base this on the length ratio of the lower leg and femur. So essentially, at small sizes, modern flightless birds are pretty similar to theropods. But as the birds get bigger, and by bigger, I mean like bigger than a house cat sort of size, their lower leg, also known as the tibiotarsus, gets much longer than the femur. It gets really out of whack compared to what you see in dinosaurs, non-avian dinosaurs, I should say. Plus, the center of mass isn't quite in the right place. It sort of shifts in a different direction than what you see in things like T-Rex. So this leads to significantly different biomechanics between extinct and extant flightless dinosaurs. <laughs> but usually we see the test done on these flightless dinosaurs. So there are two groups that seem to align better with non-avian theropod leg proportions. One of them is felines. Interesting. Yeah, they used measurements from wild cats, which are about the size of house cats, up to panthers and cheetahs, and they all had similar proportions to dinosaurs. So getting up in the larger sizes, whereas birds start to go off in this other direction. The other group is like, I kind of saw like the felines as logical because they have a sort of similar niche. You know, they're predatory, they're pretty quick. It's like you could see a comparison between like a T-Rex and a panther or something. But the other group is ungulates. <laughs> that includes buffalo, goats, yaks, moose, and other huge <laughs> herbivores. They didn't include cattle. I think maybe that's because of concerns about selective breeding. Or maybe it's just by chance because they only picked nine and it's a huge group. I don't know. But their legs, when you look at just like the skeletal drawing and you just look at the leg part and not the foot part because that's a hoof... <laughs> <laughs> they look actually pretty similar to theropods. It's really surprising. Obviously, overall, the entire leg, including the foot of felines and ungulates, don't look exactly like theropods, but they do seem to look a lot more like theropods than modern bird legs do. It's a pretty interesting study to do. It's been proposed previously that feline hind limbs do seem to match up better with non-avian theropods. There was an article from the 1990s that was cited in this paper, but I guess it didn't catch on because we've seen lots of studies of how bird legs move and how they're affected by having tails stuck on them or wings on their back was a recent one and things like that. I think part of that is because all these modern animals are quadrupedal. So if you're going to make an actual model using the animal, it's kind of tricky. And so really we're just talking about observing their back legs and sort of how the back legs could move and what the range of motion is. But that could definitely be really useful if we start doing some of our slow-mo cameras on like feline hind legs rather than doing it just on birds. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Also, check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino for cool rewards. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.